Here we go. West Hills Friends is a Quaker meeting in Portland, Oregon. You can find more information about our community at westhillsfriends.org. As a Quaker community, we encourage everyone to share from their hearts, especially as it pertains to God's leading in their lives. These words are shared into a community that values the opportunity to respond and dialogue about what is said. The responses and dialogue are not included in this recording. The views expressed in this content are solely those of the original contributors. And do not necessarily speak for the entire West Hills Friends community. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I'm I'm really very glad to be here. I uh, wasn't envisioning that I was standing up here with a microphone. I was envisioning envisioning us sitting in a small circle, you know, having a conversation. So uh, I'm going to treat this like it's that kind of a time. And if you would all assist me with that, that would be helpful. Uh, my name is Beth Woolsey. I am uh, a writer. I live in Newburgh. I attend North Valley Friends Church, and uh, I am on the elders there. So the first thing I want to do is uh, bring those of you who are West Hills folks greetings from the North Valley elders and let you know that we have been in um, meetings and uh, processing this yearly meeting decision also, and um, we are grieving with you. So um, I just needed you, you to know that. If I, if I could, by show of hands, um, how many of you folks belong somehow or attend somehow yearly meeting churches? Are we all? <laughs> that is an excellent clarifying question. And this is the first of several times I'll stick my foot in my mouth, so we can all... Yes, so Friends Churches in the Pacific Northwest. Okay. Um, I, I, I was asking that question mostly because I, I just needed to know if this was a, a family conversation or, or not, and for me, it is. So... Um, once, you know, when we all come with, with a, a similar experience of having chosen friends as our spiritual communities and spiritual homes, it makes this conversation a little different. Now, when Mark and Mike approached me about doing this kindling conversation, it was, of course, before the yearly meeting elders made their decision, and I um, fully expected Mark to say, this is a terrible time uh, for you to come and do this. And he didn't, so here I am. <laughs> so you can blame Mark is what I'm saying. Um, but I have felt really overwhelmed, and my, my husband Greg is here with us, and he can attest to this. I felt really overwhelmed with um, the sense of privilege of getting to be here with you today while you're uh, in the midst of processing this um, this, this unwanted separation and this grief, uh, and uh, getting to mourn really with you. So, our topic today is, and I have my phone up here because this is where all my, all my notes are, not because these days people's phones are fused to their hands, although probably a little bit that too, but I just wanted you to know this isn't my security blanket, it's actually uh, my Bible. <laughs> 
and my device for notes um, for talking today. But our, our topic is, of course, the church isn't dying, it's being reborn. Um, because I write and am online a lot, because of that, I see a lot of articles on how the church is dying and the panic that we tend to go through as a church when we see millennials leaving and our youth making you know, different choices than the traditional churches where we grew up. And um, a, a, lot of, a lot of panicky articles, a lot of, um, a lot of fear, a lot of disquiet, a lot of blame a lot of blaming entitled millennials or um, blaming older folks in the church for either not making church appealing enough or uh, failing to instill in our youth today the importance of Jesus Christ. And um, fair warning, I am something of a diehard optimist and uh, it's just, it's a personal flaw. So I, uh, I just kept going, really? Really? Is that is that really what we're seeing? Are we? Do we really believe that we have done something that pulls away God's ability to draw people of all ages into community with each other and into this body that we know of as the body of Christ? Really? Uh, are we discounting God and Jesus' presence in our lives that significantly that we that we think the church? is is actually you know breathing its last breaths so i started to think about it more and um ended up writing about it but i'm gonna start with some uh background and i am gonna i am gonna gonna read a few a few things both that i've written and from scripture because i do better when i've had time to think through my words and put them on paper and edit them than i do extemporaneously. So I hope, uh, perhaps selfishly, for two things from this time. I hope, I hope for you to know that, that I that truly love you, and I love West Hills, and I love the things that you do here, and I have the deepest admiration and respect for the process that you guys have gone through and um, the ways that you are proceeding with loving God and loving your neighbors. And the second thing is that I, I hope that, uh, that in the midst of our grief that we'll leave here with some measure of, of hope for the church. And I don't necessarily mean West Hills, although in part certainly, uh, or the yearly meeting. Um, I mean hope for the community of uh, people of God. So I am going to read, just to give you a little background on who I am and what I think and where the church has moved me, a piece that I wrote in 2013 uh, titled Sanctuary. It's the dramatic moment in the movie when the one who was persecuted sprints into the church and cries out for sanctuary. Sanctuary, she yells, bursting through the great wood doors, stumbling down the aisle and falling at the foot of the altar, safe. God, I miss this picture of the church. 
And I find myself frequently brokenhearted that the church isn't perceived as safe anymore, but instead as a sin detection agency where we will find you out, or a purification station where we will cleanse you. It's sanctuary turned inside out, and it's terribly wrong, horribly misplaced, deeply out of character with a Jesus who touched the untouchables, welcomed the outcasts, said the blind man hadn't sinned, and sent the angry mob away from the woman who'd been convicted by them. The political and religious wars rage in our minds and in our hearts and on our Facebook pages, friend against friend and brother against brother in true civil war fashion. And I'm often weary when I watch. Not because I won't stand up for what I believe, but because I need a break from being bruised and battered in the battle. And I find these days I'd rather work to create the sanctuary anyway than work at being right. I turned 40 over the weekend, 40 years old, or as my kids like to say, whoa. I spent all of my 20s and the early part of my 30s seeking sanctuary, desperate for it. Desperate for a place to fall down in safety. Desperate to lay my grimy head at the foot of the altar. Desperate to let my scratched feet and scraped legs stick out from underneath my torn clothes. To stop trying to cover the scars. To meet the gentle priest who brings bread and wine not with the intention to sway me towards sanctification or salvation, but just for sustenance and for the sake of kindness. You're safe, he'd say. Eat, drink, rest. And I found myself terribly disappointed and disillusioned that the church was unreliable about providing it, that I wasn't sure I was safe to show my wounds there, that I wasn't free to say the things I thought out loud without inviting the mob to attack. Of course there are people in the church who provide sanctuary, time and time again, so many, so beautifully, with such abiding and selfless love. But there are also people in the church who won't, or who can't, or who think they do but don't, because the church is peppered with humans just everywhere making it all terribly perfect and also pathetic, like the rest of the human race. Except they do it in the name of God, which is what is so hard to take. Now I know I'm holding the church to unreasonable expectations as though the church is supposed to be God rather than learn God, which it turns out is me making the church an idol and then being disappointed when my God made of sticks and mud doesn't act like the God made of love. But I just want so badly to know where to find it. Sanctuary. So I looked for it in my marriage. And I looked for it in my children. And I looked for it in my family and in my friends and in my church and on the wind and on the waves and in myself. And I found it there too. Often, sanctuary is there in every one of those places and people absolutely. But only sometimes and not always when I'd like. Because people and wind and waves can be fickle, steady and unstable, which is why they're so much fun and so gorgeous and so destructive and so costly. So where is the sanctuary then? You know, reliably. 
Where is the sanctuary if not in the church or in our people or in ourselves? Where is the sanctuary we so desperately seek? Well, I'm 40 now, you know, 40 years old, which means I've run for sanctuary hundreds of times, maybe thousands barefoot through the city, and I've been greeted by the priest. And I've found the church empty, and I've been lifted up and let down by all my people, including myself. And this is what I've learned. Sanctuary is wherever love is found, and love rains down all the time, but it only hits us drop by drop. In the church, drop by drop. Out of the church, drop by drop. In my marriage, drop by drop. And in myself, drop by drop. A tiny piece of love at a time. And in that love, sanctuary. Yes, sanctuary is where we find love, who some call God or Jesus, and Anne Lamott calls Howard. And I sometimes call the aunties because they're wise and smart and savvy and strong, and they laugh uproariously and shriek when they skinny dip and give me sips of bourbon by the fire, which is to me a piece of love made flesh. It's true that only in perfect love is there perfect rest, but here's the secret. Anyone can be the conduit through which perfect love flows for a little while. It's up to us to be on the lookout for them, on the lookout for the drops between the droughts, because in love is the only place we'll find real sanctuary. And then I ended with a quote by George Fox, which will be familiar to all of you, but wasn't necessarily to my readers, not many of whom are Quaker. Then you will come to walk cheerfully over the world, answering that of God in everyone, which George Fox penned in 1656. I uh, loved the song that Jill and Aaron had us sing this morning. Um, the line, don't you know the love of God is pouring out like rain up upon this land. And I thought, knowing that I was going to read, read this post about the drop by drop, and I love that they had us create communal rain in little bits and that we all had a small piece of it to play and that all of our sounds were different with the tapping and that there were different types of, there's different types of rain, and it was raining down differently, but altogether we created the rainstorm. I think that's what we can do as a church, and that's what I mean by the churches being, being reborn. We're part of this birth, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, actually, I'll get to it now. So, so I wrote this piece called uh, The Church Isn't Dying, It's Being Reborn. And I'm going to read it to you. You may have... You may have already met, read it, you may not have, um, but it describes as well as anything what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the church and death and rebirth. Dear fellow Christians, I hear a lot of talk these days, a lot of talk. Talk accompanied by hand wringing, talk accompanied by agonizing, Talk accompanied by finger-wagging and distress, and, well, even some woe. The church, by and large, and I mean the universal church here, the whole shebang, the big enchilada, is kind of, to be technical about it, freaking the hell out. The church is dying, we say. The church is almost dead. And we get panicky and fearful because the church is gasping for breath, and it's on our watch. 
It's not last week's SCOTUS decision to legalize marriage for all comers and the implication on a traditional view of scripture that I'm talking about. We're not just that, since I've been drafting this post for 100, 100 years now. The church is dying, we say, and we've been saying it for quite some time, looking for signs of deterioration and finding them everywhere. Millennials are leaving in droves, we cry. Our numbers are declining. Fewer and fewer people adhere to fundamentalist or even evangelical interpretations of the Bible, we notice, and we're right. The people in the pews are getting older, we see, and we wonder how to bring in the next generations. Lost, we call people who don't subscribe to our version of church, as though we get to assign that title, as though we think we can know who's lost and who's found. And I could cite examples for all these things, but frankly, I looked on the World Wide Web's and e-gads, there are thousands of thousands of articles to choose from. Whole series of books where the freakouts are happening. So as a mama of five who works two jobs and has to choose some things not to do, I'm going to say if you need proof, look it up. Google can help you, it's what they do. It's what they live for. The church is dying, we say, and we conduct polls, and we read stats, and we concoct fancy plans to lure people back. Come back, we say, and people don't. They don't come back, not to church as we understand it anyway, and we despair. The church, it seems, is on its deathbed, and those who love Jesus, those who adore what the church could be as a life giver and a light bringer and a love bearer, mourn. But what I want to suggest is this, a teeny tiny thought. I want to ask us to consider the idea that the church may not be dying, friends. It may not be dying at all. The church may be being reborn. What if? What if this is true? The church isn't dying. The church is being reborn. Listen, friends, listen. Listen to this little whisper that sounds a lot like hope. The church isn't dying, it's being reborn. The church is being reborn as it has again and again throughout modern history. Again and again, the church is reborn. I mean, yes, the church is a hot mess right now, a whole big emotional mess. We are not being kind. We are not being gentle. We are not exhibiting self-control. We are looking the fruits of the Spirit in the eyes and hollering, bite me, fruits of the Spirit, bite me, which, hello, is labor exactly. Birth in spades. Bite me, kindness. Suck it, gentleness. I am in pain here, and I am doing the best I can. Have you ever been in labor? Have you ever seen it? Imagined it even? The pain, the agony, the ooey gooey mess. We are pooping all over that table, friends. While we labor and fight and push to bring about new life. The church isn't dying, it's being reborn. And it's a giant mess of a process like birth always is. The church isn't dying, it's being reborn. And there are people who don't want to be in the room. They've disengaged. They've walked out. The process has been too painful. It's been too much. 
and that's okay, it really is. Not all of us are built for labor or called to go through it. Not all of us can go through it after we've endured too much. But some of us are in the middle of it, smack dab, called to labor, called to engage, called to do the birthing or to bear witness to it with all the gore and the swearing and the sweating and the slime. We're called to labor with all the dedication and all the exhaustion and the risks in equal measure of triumph or defeat. We're called to labor because we're driven to help new life draw its first breaths. We're called to labor because love is pushing and kicking and straining to get out. We're called to labor because we adore love already, despite not knowing it fully, despite getting it wrong so often. And we're called to labor because we know on some core level, love is always worth the agony. The church isn't dying. I'm sorry, this is really emotional to read in front of you guys, of all people. The church isn't dying. It's being reborn in you as love again. We are abandoning fundamentalism. <clears throat> Ironically, to get back to the fundamental of the gospel, which is to love God and ourselves, and to give the gift of love freely away, especially to those who are different than ourselves, because love teaches us that those who are different are our neighbors and our friends. <clears throat> we serve a God of love after all. We serve a God of resurrection. We serve a God of new life. And it turns out, this isn't a numbers game or a death game. This is a hearts game and a hope game, a faith game, a love game. Birth is beautiful. Yes, a miracle. And it's gritty and grimy and ugly. Might I suggest this? That our exhaustion with the heresy of exclusion and the nitpicking of rule-bound faith is a rebirthing of the church and not the killing of it. Jesus has always been most present in the mess, friends. Born in the muck and the mess and the madness, divinity in unexpected places, why should we expect it to be different now? Where else would Jesus be found? The truth is I know less and less as the years go by. Less and less and what I do know becomes more deeply distilled into one message and one message only, which is this. Love God. Or if, or if the name God doesn't make sense to you, too stretched out of shape by people trying to shove too many non-God-shaped things inside it, then use God's other name, which is love, love incarnate. Love God is the message I know. Love love. 
Love the author and perfecter of love itself. Love love in its purest form. And then love each other from the outpouring of that love. Love each other wildly and without limits, full of undeserved, unearned grace. The church isn't dying, friends. It's being reborn again as love incarnate. And that, my friends, is hope. And then in a PS, I say Shel Silverstein already wrote this whole post in poem form. It's called Invitation. I'm sure, I'm sure you know it. And it's one of the most godly things I've ever read. If you're a dreamer, come in. If you are a dreamer, a wisher, a liar, a hoper, a prayer, a magic bean buyer. If you're a pretender, come sit by my fire, for we have some flax golden tails to spin. Come in, come in. Uh, do you guys keep Kleenex in this church? Because, good Lord. I more free form, um, and I, I sympathized with you, Mark, as you, were, as you were at the end of worship today saying you didn't have words for prayer because I kept thinking you do. It's just that those words are in your heart, and that's what the Bible tells us over and over is that the cries of our heart are our prayers when, uh, when we don't have the, the verbal words to speak. And um, you have all been, been uh, in the cries of my heart um, all week. And, and as I've thought about you and, and mourned for us as a whole yearly meeting um, because the loss of you is excruciating and, and to me intolerable, um, I've given that over and over, you know, to God as, a, as an offering of grief, um, feeling that, that loss in my heart. Um, and God, because God is faithful, always, even when people are not, uh, has given uh, me a couple of situations um, where I feel like uh, I've been gifted with these uh, verses from Scripture as people have shared. And um, I certainly um, identified with what you said this morning also, Greg, when you were talking about finding um, richness and depth at this time in Scripture. Uh, yesterday at our at our uh, North Valley Elders meeting, which we held in the afternoon. Scott Headley, who's the clerk of the North Valley Elders, um, shared, shared from Galatians 2, which is, of course, when, uh, when Paul was trying to justify uh, his ministry to, um, to, the non, to the non-Jews. And the church was finding it very difficult to accept um, the Jewish church was trying, finding it difficult to accept uh, this passage of, of scripture uh, is, is from the message and I'll read it in a middle in a minute but, but what uh, Eugene Peterson has, has you know titled the chapter is what is central <laughs> which I think is is telling um, one of the things we talked about about yesterday in our in our elders meeting was the um, was whether faith and practice is dynamic or static, whether it's creedal or non-creedal, um, which I'm sure we're having conversations all over the, the yearly meeting about stuff like this. And, um, and we were talking about whether, whether we are 
as a group of, of Quaker churches, boundary set or center set? So are we uh, set, established by the boundaries around us, by rule keeping, by setting the boundaries and having no one stray outside of it lest they're no longer a part of our group? Or are we center set? Are we set on, on what is the center, what binds us together, um, which is, of course, Christ and loving God and uh, loving each other and, as my husband spoke in open worship, having Christ be the fulfillment of the law. Um, and I, I believe that's, that's a question that the early meeting is uh, going to have to continue to, to wrestle with, whether we're boundary set or center set. So, what's, uh, so I find this, this passage particularly enlightening and engaging as we, as we continue that conversation. Galatians 2, what is central? And I, I'll read the first five verses just as background information. Uh, two verses, one through five, 14 years after that first visit, this is Paul speaking, Barnabas and I went up to Jerusalem and took Titus with us. I, wanna, I, want, I went to clarify with them what had been revealed to me. At that time, I placed before them exactly what I was preaching to the non-Jews. I did this in private with the leaders, those held in esteem by the church, so that our concern would not become a controversial public issue, marred by ethic, ethnic tensions, exposing my years of work to denigration and endangering my present ministry. I find it interesting that this is, you know, <laughs> the first church, and they're already dealing with, with issues that we continue to, to deal with. But he goes on to say in verses uh, 15 and 16 and 19 through 21, we Jews know that we have no advantage of birth over non-Jewish sinners. We know very well that we are not set right with God by rule keeping, but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. How do we know? We tried it. And we had the best system of rules the world has ever seen. What actually took place is this, Paul says. I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a law man so that I could be God's man. Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. And I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine but is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not going to go back on that. Is it not clear to you that to go back to that old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of everything personal and free in my relationship with God? I refuse to do that to repudiate God's grace. If a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. Scott read that yesterday, and I just sat there floored, going, wow, <laughs> is this not exactly, exactly what we're going through? 
And then Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 16 and 19. The Lord created Jacob and formed Israel. Now this is what the Lord says, do not be afraid, because I have reclaimed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you go through the sea, I am with you. When you go through the rivers, they will not sweep you away. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned and the flames will not harm you. The Lord makes a path through the sea and a road through the strong currents. I am going to do something new. It is already happening. Don't you recognize it? I will clear away in the desert. I will make rivers on dry land. And um, really, that's what I want to, to leave us with as my thoughts on, on this process. Um, that the church isn't dying, it's being reborn, and I believe absolutely the church is being reborn through West Hills Friends Church. I believe that you're doing work that is faithful to God and to that rebirth. I believe absolutely that... Um, that we can walk together loving God and loving our neighbors, and that we can learn that all people are our neighbors. It's my phone. <laughs> um, at the end of our elders meeting yesterday, Scott prayed a really simple prayer, which was help us live so that Christ is living through us and help us make love our aim. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with the yearly meeting appeals process, and I read um, Kathy's beautifully written letter this morning in your bulletin. Um, and I just want you to know that... that um, if it's time for those of you who are weary to rest, that that's okay. And that there are others of us um, who remain officially with the early meeting, though we may feel that we have also been released along with you for holding the same positions as you, um, who are ready to take, take that up on your behalf and to work um, for the rebirthing of the church. So I would like to have some profound questions now to ask you so we can have a discussion, and I don't have any. So I'm going to hand it over <laughs> to Mark and uh, with thanks for allowing me to come and be here with you.